to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. This episode is going to be a little different from the others. It is an off-week episode of it to take some time to reflect on the first two people that we have looked at. It is a lot of fun to plow through names and dates and hear all of their ideas, but honestly, I have a short memory. And I think it's really easy to consume a bunch of information but not retain any of it, or have any perspective on how all of that fits together. So my goal is to do a short recap after we go through a few characters, so it'll be probably every month or two months, hopefully. And then we can step back, get a clearer sense of the advances in a much broader sense. And hopefully this will put the people and their ideas into a clearer focus. I've also been asked to give a little bit more of my own opinions and reactions. So I'll try to put some of those in here as well, since I'm honestly intentionally leaving them out of the regular episodes. So, who are the major characters that we've looked at so far? Right now, it's only two. It's Hugo de Groot and Louis Capel. I'm only doing these two because the next two people that we'll be discussing go really well together. So, I don't want to discuss four people and three would split up the next two individuals. So, anyways, if you remember, Hugo de Groot placed natural law and divine command on equal but separate footing. He claimed that moral law is born within people and is immutable. So, if God commands something that doesn't line up with that moral law, then divine command must lie outside of moral laws. The second person, Louis Capel, claimed that Hebrew vowel points came after AD 500, and the questionable accuracy of the Hebrew text did not undermine his Protestant faith or God's providence. So he claimed that the vowels did not greatly affect the meaning of the text, and even where it did, these alternate possibilities were just a part of God's providence. So that's a brief overview, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into De Groot. I asked the question of how you deal with the moral law and God's commands, in the first episode there. However, I think there is something more fundamental that we all should be asking. This is especially crucial for the religious listeners, but everyone I think can benefit from this. So the question is, is moral or natural law a thing? In other words, do you have a natural or inborn concept of morality? I think most of us are so conditioned to think this way that we say yes without thinking about it. 
we are perfectly content with an abstract notion of morality that exists somewhere in the ether out there, and we all have access to it. But I would say that this thinking did not come about until the time of the humanist, like Grotius or a little bit before him. So let me challenge that concept in a couple ways. First, rethink how you read your Hebrew Bible. We read the Ten Commandments as good things, right? Do not steal, kill, covet, etc. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy is just a repeat of the law. The Greek words deutero, meaning two, and namas, meaning law, makes deuteronomy. Anyways, Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and mother, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that your days may be prolonged and it may go well for you on the land in which the Lord your God is giving you. This is probably pretty well known. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. We may not say all the lengthy part, but we know it's one of the Ten Commandments. Be good to people, especially the ones who are supposed to be taking care of you. Well, that's in Deuteronomy 5.16. Later in the book, in Deuteronomy 21.18-21, quote, If any person has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or his mother, and when they discipline him, he does not listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not obey us. He is thoughtless and given to drinking. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall eliminate the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear about it and fear. End quote. Yikes. This does not go very well with our cultural sensibilities. The first lines up with most people morals, right? Respect elders, respect parents, be a good child and a good person. But the second law is an extreme punishment that makes you wonder about the whole do not murder thing, right? But that is the problem with our underlying assumption of moral law. Neither of these laws appeal to a natural moral order or understanding. Both of them are said to be given by God and non-negotiable. This leads to my second point, and the reason I brought this up, would the original authors and readers have understood the concept of moral law? I don't think so. That framework is so ingrained in our modern thinking that we forget the ancient writers would not have understood it. There was God's command and transgressing God's command. End of story. None of them would have thought, does this line up with what I feel is right or moral? Do I think this is good or bad based upon my internal sense of morality? That concept is thoroughly modern. So trying to line up biblical laws with that type of thinking is asking questions that the text never intended to answer. They didn't ask if God was telling them things that lined up with how they felt, so they never needed to explain it or question it in that moral law kind of way. 
So do with the concept of moral law what you will. I think it is troubling from a philosophical and epistemological standpoint as well. But right now I'm just raising the problem of applying it to biblical text. When we start assuming philosophical frameworks that the authors were not using, it is very hard to understand what they are saying and why they are saying it. And this is one of those frameworks that is so built into our culture that we forget it's a recent concept and perhaps not actually real and true. For those outside of the Judeo-Christian faith, think about epistemologically or experientially. Where do you think moral law comes from? Are we born with it? If so, then children should have the same moral values regardless of their upbringing and cultural background because it is biologically ingrained as part of the stuff that makes us morally reasoning humans. In my experience, this is not the case. For example, I'm thinking of children in violent families who grow up without any moral objection to violence. Even from a young age, they can display an indifference to cruelty that many others would find objectionable. Another option would be that moral law is conditioned. In this case, culture, society, and family create morality. So there is not a moral law, but many versions of moral law. The challenge here is that outside forces can create their own moral system, but this can go down a dark road really, really fast. Think about slavery in the U.S. or Nazis in Germany. In these cases, families and governments created a moral system that said racial groups are not all equal. So they conditioned the moral law into people. So when my moral law says that racism is evil, their moral law says racism is, in fact, godly. They use a lot of religious rhetoric. So they would have said racism is godly. So it is not inborn. It is conditioned. So I have huge doubts about the existence of an inborn moral law and a huge fear about a conditioned moral law. But that's not entirely my point. You can use whatever moral guide you want, but if you are examining the Hebrew Bible, it helps to look at it on their terms. They would be closer to a conditioned moral law, but not really there in our social way of thinking. For them, it wasn't about morals in terms of abstract right or wrong. It was about divine decree or not divine decree. God's commands were not operating within an abstract moral system. They were just what they were. God says, jump and you jump. Your feelings about it are not a measure of whether it is good, bad, or in between. You just do what God says because divine command is the definition of morally right. And against divine command is the definition of morally wrong. Anyways, I I hope that gives some application and at least some things to think about. I don't have all the answers, but I can at least raise some deeper questions. So I want to leave us there in our discussion of Hugo de Groot. Does moral law exist? Is moral law valuable, helpful, worthwhile? Decide for yourself. 
I do want to move on to Louis Capel's contribution, but first, let's take a break. Recapped at the top of this episode, Louis Capel claimed that Hebrew vowel points came after AD 500, and the questionable accuracy of the Hebrew text did not undermine his Protestant faith or God's providence. I gave a really brief overview in the actual episode, but I think the concern is still alive today for people who claim the truth of the Old Testament. Capel sidestepped the issue, but I don't know if that entirely solves the problem. So how do you deal with vocalic changes and the reliability of the Old Testament? Let me preface this with textual variation will be a concern for many scholars in the future. I don't want to dive too deeply in it here because it will be a recurring theme. But I do want to point out that there are two main types of textual changes at least for someone trying to hold to the reliability of the Old Testament. So there are textual changes that affect the meaning and textual changes that do not. Even this distinction is more of a sliding scale than two separate options. And Capel showed that many of the texts were essentially the same without vowels. And I think he is correct. The fear that there are millions of options for interpretation can be alleviated by thinking about context. So I want to spend this time giving you a short example of that. Let's say you have a text about baseball, the great American sport that nobody watches anymore. So your text about baseball and one sentence in there is he swung the bat. He swung the bat. Take the vowels out. So a word with only H, being the first word is just an H, it's probably he, right? There are not many other options for just that consonant. Also, it makes sense because he is a common subject in sentences. Your other option could be eh, E-H, but that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to start a sentence off with. Well, the second word, S-W-N-G, could be swung. It can't be swings because there's no S at the end. And it can't be swing because he, H-E, is singular. Swing needs a plural like they swing, right? 
So now you have he swung, right? S-W-N-G, again, only has so many options. But then the end of the sentence has T-H space B-T. And so T-H is pretty obviously the because of the context, right? If you know English, then you know that he swung T-H. The other word is probably going to be the. It's going to be he swung the something. Just makes the most sense after your verb. Then for the last word, you could think that it would be but, B-U-T, but that doesn't make much sense because it should be the object of the verb in that sentence. He's swinging something. You would have, he swung the but, and every English speaker goes, huh? But what? Also, what is the doing in this sentence before the word but? It would work for he swung, but he missed. Though you can see the doesn't fit in that sentence. He swung, but he missed. Not he swung, the but he missed. Also remember, this is a text about baseball, right? If you know anything about baseball, you know that the normal thing to swing is a bat. So the context of it makes it super obvious that he swung the bat. Regardless of what other words you could try to fit into B-T. He swung the bat is the most clear based on your context, based on the words around each one, their placement in this sentence. In this way, the possibilities of unvocalized Hebrew are minimized. Capel was right when he said that in most places, the vowels help but don't really affect the meaning in a substantial way. Given the context, there are only so many possibilities that you can have. Of the textual concerns that will come in the future, this is honestly the easiest one to overcome. Vowels help but are not integral to the text. You can still get the same meaning in most places, and even in many places where variation is possible, it is unlikely to have a substantial impact. Think about the difference between I run and I ran. Is that different? Sure. Does it fundamentally change the event? Probably not. If you read the larger paragraph, you can probably guess whether the past tense ran or the present test run is more likely. And even if both are equally likely, the fundamental point that I am running is still being made. This does not completely destroy all meaning to the biblical text, as it might seem initially, but it could potentially lead to ambiguity in certain minor places. So hopefully that adds some clarity to the textual concerns that Capel was trying to address. Cannot address all of them at this point. I don't have answers for every single place in the Hebrew Bible where there are textual variants. But I do just want to point out in his overarching argument, he is very much correct and has done his homework to prove that biblical text can be read 
without the vowels and maintain meaning. So that's all I wanted to cover in this episode. Hopefully you find the discussion interesting and maybe helpful or applicable to current thoughts, ideas, concerns that you have. But anyways, our next episode is going to be on Pierre Daniel Hewitt and Moses in history. So please tune in for that one coming next week. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistic scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.